Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, January 11th, 2017. We will be doing our light episode today. A little bit of a ramblings in Exodus twin spin. I'll explain in a minute. Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to open up God's Word. Yeah, that's right and uh, compare and see what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula apparently we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, it's weird how that works. And over and again, we demonstrate that what's being said by these folks doesn't square with God's word, historic biblical Christian orthodoxy, and they're just kind of making stuff up, scratching itching ears, and generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to be teaching. So today, like I said, we're going to be doing our light episode. And since the uh, the first, the, the, our light episode, I'm going to be doing two lectures today. Our first lecture is a little bit shorter because what I did is I did a little bit of work at the end of class using Google Earth to demonstrate where the uh, site is, uh, wh- where Mount Sinai really is. It's not in the Sinai Peninsula down there in Egypt. Nope. It's in Arabia. Scripture says it's in Arabia. And what I'll do with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I will also, on the website, so if you go to fightingforthefaith.com, find today's episode, Wednesday, January 11th, 2017. I'm going to embed a YouTube video uh, that uh, goes through where the uh, crossing was of the Red Sea in the Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, has footage from an archaeological dive that was done uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and it's really great footage where you can see coral formations uh, that literally grew into the, uh, the, well, the destroyed chariots of Pharaoh. Yeah, you can see that. It's, it, it, it's there. And then it also includes uh, uh, information about uh, where Mount Sinai is, Jabal al-Laz. And uh, there's lots of reasons to believe that that's where it is. One of them is quite biblical. It's in Arabia. 
And uh, and so you can actually find the site on Google Earth, but I don't know how to explain how to do that. But the other thing I would strongly recommend, and you'll hear me say this probably more than once over the next couple of weeks, a documentary that is worth its weight in gold uh-huh, is a documentary called Patterns of Evidence Exodus. Patterns of Evidence, Evidence Exodus. And it it is mind blowing the uh, the evidence that we have for the biblical uh, exodus, and yet there's a whole group of archaeologists who seem to be closing their eyes and saying, "Nope, I don't see no evidence." And uh, it's very fascinating. And so the uh, the documentary itself goes through what the problem is, explains what the evidence is, and it's mind blowingly amazing evidence. And why there are scholars who are completely uh, hostile and resistant to the uh, to the evidence that exists, and uh, and it so it does a fascinating uh, job. And if you are a su- subscriber on Netflix, you are able to watch that uh, that documentary on next on Netflix. So worth the uh, worth the uh, the watch. And so I think I'll I'll try to put a link up to that as well with today's episode. So with that, let's uh, grab our Bibles. I think we're going to be in Exodus chapter 8, and this is the next installment of Roseboro's Ramblings Through Exodus. This will go a little bit long, uh, so maybe about 40 minutes or so. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we will get into, into lecture number two. So here we go. Okay, let us pray, and we will get into our text today. We are in the tail end of Exodus Exodus 8, starting at verse 25, let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, as we open your word, we ask that you open our hearts and minds so that your spirit may continue to conform us into the image of your Son. And through your word, you teach us our doctrine as well as our life. May we hold both firmly to the glory of your holy name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been working our way through the book of Exodus. And we have noted that God is keeping his word. We over and again see the refrain in the passages of Exodus, as the Lord had said through Moses, as the Lord had said through Moses. And we're going to note that again, it says over and again, thus far, with each plague that has come upon the Egyptians, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God is about to do some hardening of his own, and he's going to get very specific with Pharaoh regarding his sin, if you would. We're going to note these things, and we're going to get through, we're going to get through plague number nine today, and we're going to save plague ten. We're going to save t- plague ten for next week. Plague ten is a vitally important plague. Plague ten points us to Jesus in so many ways, it's going to take us a little bit of time to unpack it. You remember John the Baptist saying, it wasn't John the Baptist, I think it was Paul said, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. The Passover is intricately linked with plague number 10, the killing of the firstborn, and talk about the blood of the Passover lamb on the doors, on the lintels, and, the th- and how that then points us to Christ. That takes a whole class to do. So what we're going to do today, we're going to walk through what remains of the plagues up to plague number nine. We'll finish plague nine. And then for those of you who have not been here for a long time, we're going to do a little bit of work using Google Earth. And this is going to be an important thing. And the reason for it is that there is a lot of scholarship today that, well, 
the Exodus, you know, all of these hundreds of thousands of Israelites wandering through the wilderness, crossing the Red Sea, that apparently that never happened, that there is no evidence for it. And that is hogwash. Oh, the water washed it away? No, it actually, the water did not. We'll talk about that a little bit. Okay, yeah, just the waves, just that, all washed it away. So the problem, though, and I'll kind of lay this out at the beginning, the problem is if any of you have, have any of you actually been on a tour of the Holy Land? No? No? In your dream, somebody said? Okay. Now, I haven't been to the Holy Land either. I've traveled there using other people's vacation photos that they post on social media and the Internet. I find them to be very helpful. I thought, boy, that's quite the picture. It's a very beautiful picture of the Mediterranean Sea. I enjoyed that. You know, so, you, know you can vicariously live through other people's stuff. But Google Earth helps us out a lot here. And the issue is, is that if you've been on a tour of the Holy Land... Um, oftentimes it will include a little bit of time spent in Egypt and you can go to the Great Pyramids. You can pay somebody a lot of money to ride a camel and do a photo opportunity and things like that. And then on your way back into Israel, your bus will take you into the south part of the Sinai Peninsula where apparently Mount Sinai is. But that's not where Mount Sinai is. Mount Sinai is not in Egypt. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4 explicitly says that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. And so we're going to do a little bit of biblical archaeology using Google Earth, and we will be looking for Mount Sinai. Luckily, we have the help of some new scholarship that helps us identify where it is. It's not in Egypt. It's in Saudi Arabia. We'll talk about that. Yeah, so this part of the book of maps where it says where Mount Sinai is, not inspired. I'm just just saying. We'll get there. So let's go back to our text, Exodus chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 25 for our context and then keep working through. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. See, the the plague that is happening at this point is the, uh, I think this is the flies. Um, Yep, the flies, which grosses me out extremely. I mean, I don't even like it when there's like one fly in my house. By the way, a little bit of a side note here. A handy thing to get rid of flies, I use bug zooka. Yeah, you ever heard of bug zooka? Okay, you can look it up on Amazon, and bug zooka looks like a bazooka. And yeah, <laughs> let me see if I can find this real quick. Just to, <laughs> while we're here, you know, hang on a second here. Amazon.com. I mean, I'm on the internet. Why not? You know. Yeah. Today's uh, today's Sunday school class is sponsored to you by Bug Zuka. Okay. Yes, this is it. It's this is Bug Zuka. Okay. Well, it's not quite a vacuum. It has like a little billows thing at the back end of it. And, and so what happens is you see this part right here. You kind of push that thing in and it catches. And then you use the trigger. You know, the other end, it has like a trap that's like activated by the wind. And you put your thing right next to the fly and you press the button. It goes, thunk, like that. And the fly gets sucked into it. Back to the text. So this is the swarm of flies. Pharaoh says, all right, go sacrifice to your God within the land. 
Moses said, no, it wouldn't be right for us to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God or an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? No, we must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you. I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Tomorrow, only let Pharaoh not cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. So Moses went out from Pharaoh, and he prayed. We noted this last week. Okay, Moses pleads. Moses prays. This is a picture of prayer. And this gives us a picture of even our own prayers. And you sit there and go, but I'm not Moses. Right, neither am I. We'd all be very old if we were. But the prayer of a righteous person availeth much. You are covered in the righteousness of Christ, so don't think for a second that just because you're not Moses, God doesn't hear your prayers. He does. And you'll notice it says, plead and ask and pray. Our posture in prayer is always the posture of asking God. And there is this false teaching regarding prayer today that you need to go out and decree and declare things. Are you struggling to pay your credit card debt? Well, you need to decree and declare wealth for yourself. That's not praying. That's witchcraft. That is not praying. Uh huh. So what's it? You said plead. What? Okay. Yes. Prayer is a form of pleading. And let me let me check the Hebrew on this real quick. I will depart and plead. Atar. Okay. So the uh, the Hebrew verb is atar. It's just it's translating in the ESV, kind of picking up on different aspects of it. Pray and play. Pray and plead are the same concept, the same idea. That this is an asking, an earnest request, imploring of God. That's what that means. So Moses went out from Pharaoh, he prayed to Yahweh, and the Lord did as Moses asked. Yes, he did. Wow. I just love the fact that God in his great sovereign power and mercy has chosen to listen to his children. And there are times when you literally have it figured out. You'll sit there and go, that friend of mine who's in this trouble Oh, this is a terrible situation. And what they really need is for God to help them in this way, this way, in this way. So pray to God. Lord God, please, I pray on behalf of this person that you would help that person in this way, this way, in this way. And here's the weird thing. God hears your prayer, and he just might answer it exactly how you prayed. And then when it goes down the way you had prayed, don't sit there and go, well, was that God answering my prayer or not? Because <laughs> isn't, isn't that how that works? You said to go, we, we prayed for this person and God answered our prayers, but was that really God or was that just circumstances? It was God. <laughs> the Lord did as Moses asked, remove the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Let's check the scorecard real quick. This is Yahweh versus all the false gods of Egypt. And here's all the gods that have gone down in flame because, well, they're not really gods. Knum, Hapi, Osiris, Hecht, Seb, and Uachit from, uh, these are all, yeah, Gesundheit. 
And uh, we'll see which, which gods next are going to go down. Again, notice Yahweh is defeating all of these false deities on their home turf. They seem utterly powerless to stop what Yahweh is up to. Chapter 9 now. Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, say to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go so that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague on your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. But Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And Yahweh set a time saying, tomorrow Yahweh will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. Everything, all the animals just dropped dead. It was a mass heart attack. They all just died. But here's the important words. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He did not let the people go. He's still in the driver's seat on the hardening at this point. God is going to step in. We'll note that. Chapter 9, verse 8. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln. Let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. They took the soot from the kiln, stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it in the air. It became boils, breaking out in sores. We noted that this is the same. these are the same plagues we see in Revelation chapter 16. And the same distinction is made. When you read Revelation chapter 16, the plague from one of the bold judgments of the sores on people only falls on those who have the mark of the beast. God makes a distinction even in the plague's that befall the earth there in the book of Revelation. And these are a picture of God's judgment. So they took the soup from the kiln, Moses threw it in the air, became boils breaking out on swords on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And notice what it says. Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So here's our refrain as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This calls for faith. When God says, he doesn't lie. When God tells you something, he's telling the truth. Now, God has not told us that we're going to suffer plagues like this. Instead, God has promises that he's made on our behalf and that we are forgiven, bled for, died for, have eternal life. You think of the promises in the waters of our baptism, that our sins are washed away, we're buried with Christ, we're raised with Christ, our hearts circumcised by the hand of Christ. Then you hear the absolution that your sins are forgiven. These are words not coming from me, but coming from God. And these are the things that God has spoken. And does God lie? Does God say he's going to do something and it's not true? No. So when God speaks, we say, yes, God. And you sit there and go, but I don't understand. Yeah, neither do I. I don't understand how combustion engine, how it really operates or works, and I cannot change the oil in my own truck. And still, I get into it. Now, listen, I understand there's some men here, they're gassed at this news. My apologies, I'm a theologian, not a mechanic. I'm a mechanic of a different type. So you get the idea. But you don't have to understand how something works to know that it does. That 
We don't know. Because here's my question. Okay, we just had the plague of the livestock. Mm -hmm. died. Now it's states um yeah, and gestrin boils will break out on men and animals yeah. throughout the land. If all of their livestock animals die, yeah. They they've had time now to to go and say to the Israelites, hey, you know, that's a good-looking cow. Would you mind selling that one to me? You know, or would you mind selling me part of your sheep because, you know, well, ours, well, as you've heard from Yahweh, died, you know. And so there's obviously some time that has passed between these plagues. So we don't know the exact time frame. We don't know from the first plague to the last plague. Was it three weeks? Was it a month? Was it half a year? We're not sure. But clearly there's been enough time that their livestock has been replenished in some sense. They've gone out and purchased more. And the only place you can get, well, livestock in Egypt at this time is, well, Goshen. So, why would he harden the, or why would the Lord harden the Alright, why if he this... Okay. All right. Here's the idea. The scriptures explicitly teach us that the reason why this is all happening the way it is is so that God can manifest his power, his glory, and his judgment. So Pharaoh is now going to stand for time immemorial as an example to the rest of the world of what it looks like when somebody opposes and exalts himself against God. And so God knew what the end would be. And so here's the idea, is that as we've been reading through the plagues, we've been hearing these words, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. God didn't. And at some point, now things are starting to change. As we're, we just read, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And this is, this is a very severe judgment. And the idea is this. You want to persist in sin, in unbelief, you want to continue to oppose God and exalt yourself over him and harden your heart against what he is telling you to do. What is he telling you to do? Repent. Repent. Be forgiven. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You want to continue to go down your path? Well, at some point, you hardening your heart, you hardening your heart, God goes, I like to say, he goes all Burger King on you. Remember the Burger King commercials? You can have it your way. All right? So God goes all Burger King on you and says, fine, have it your way. You want to keep hardening your heart? Now I'm going to step in and I'm going to harden your heart so that you can't change your mind. And so when that happens, the person literally becomes the walking damned, damned of God. There is no possibility for repentance at all. And God's going to run them off the cliff of their life and that cliff will take them straight off into the fires of hell. And the judgment occurs in time and space rather than at the end. Yes, that's exactly what this text says. That he is an example of God's severity as well as God's mercy. I know it's, it seems harsh, but remember who's in charge all around here. God is. And although it seems harsh by our understanding, keep this in mind, is that Scripture is very clear that all of God's judgments are just and right, and there's never a judgment, especially on the day of judgment that God makes, that will say, no, God, that was unjust of you. No, all of God's judgments are just, true, and right. 
And as severe and awful as this is, this also serves us by showing us just how seriously God takes idolatry and sin and those who exalt themselves against Him. It's really severe. The consequences of our sin is eternity in hell. Let us not forget that. Now let's continue with the text, because the text is actually going to come back to the question you were asking regarding why God is doing this, but that's coming up in just a little bit. So the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh. So remember, God hardened Pharaoh's heart in this last one. And uh, the God of the Hebrews. And he says, Let my people go so that they may serve me, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, and now I want you to notice, God hardened his heart in the last plague. God is not going to harden Pharaoh's heart in this plague. And with this plague comes a very specific call on God, pointing out Pharaoh's very specific sins. Watch what he says. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so this right here, I'm showing you my power so that my name will be proclaimed. You can literally kind of paraphrase that. I'm showing you my power so that you'll repent and proclaim my name. That's what God is doing. He actually wants Pharaoh to repent. But he won't. He says, and then God says to Pharaoh, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Who is he exalting himself against? God's people. And when you exalt yourself against God's people, you're exalting yourself against the God of those people, God himself. And so he wants him to repent. He basically says, listen, I could have snuffed you out in plague number one. I just could have put my thumb down and you're gone. Instead, I've shown you my power so that my name will be proclaimed, so that you'd repent. How is God's name proclaimed? When sinners repent and are forgiven. This is God's desire for Pharaoh, but he has having none of it, and he calls out his sin that he's exalting himself, which, by the way, is how Satan operates. Let me remind you of what Scripture says regarding the devil, the way the devil is described in Isaiah chapter 14. Terrible passage, by the way, but you can get the, you get the gist of what the devil is like. Isaiah 14, 12. Oh, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid low the nations. You said in your heart, listen to this, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. You have an eye problem there. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down the shield to the far reaches of the pit. You see it? So the one who is exalting himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who exalts himself, what is he doing? He's being satanic. He's being just like his father, the devil. The one who is trying to exalt himself above God himself. And that will not go so well for the devil or any of the people who are following him in this nonsense. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you 
and your people with pestilence. But for this purpose, I raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And we see the details of this hail. This is not like any supercell thunderstorm we've even experienced up here. I'll explain in a minute. God says, now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And you're wondering, how big is this hail? We've seen the golf ball size. We've seen the dime size. What is this, like grapefruits or cannonballs falling from the sky? What is this? It's a little bit more than even that. Well, you'll see. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock. So they're out in the field. They're going to die. Whoever feared the word of the Lord. Now, here's the distinction. The distinction is not between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Now the dividing line is between those who fear the word of the Lord, even if you are an Egyptian. When whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock, they hurried them into the houses. It's like, oh man, Yahweh's going to act again. Every time that God speaks, He means what He says. He says what He means. Quick, get into shelter. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And that didn't go well for them. And here's the storm. So then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast, and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and Yahweh sent thunder and hail, and yes, that's exactly what that word is, fire. Hot, fire and ice. Normally these two don't mix. Not sure how this is working out, but this, this hail is also mixed with fire. It ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were was there no hail. Yes. You, you're you're going to have to. Yeah, I would say, I don't know. You ch- do your archaeological research on ancient Egyptian abodes. I'm sure some of them had, you know, thatched roofs and stuff like that. That wouldn't have provided shelter. And I'm sure they were sitting there going, okay, really big hail's coming. This roof ain't going to do it. Let's go to the next door neighbor's house. They have a better roof. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. If you were in the pyramids, you survived. So, right. So we continue now. The Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. Yahweh's in the right. My people are in the wrong. 
Plead with Yahweh, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Now, this sounds like repentance, right? But already we know this isn't because the Lord said he wouldn't. So this is just him feigning repentance. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail. So that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. There's the reason why. It doesn't belong to the Egyptian deities. It belongs to me, the Lord says. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear Yahweh. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So apparently they hadn't really come up yet. So we have part of the crops needed to sustain the people gone Right, the major crop failure all over Egypt. And God's going to make sure that the next part gets taken care of in the next plague. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh, stretched out his hand to Yahweh. The thunder and the hail ceased. The rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw, yet again, uh, when he saw that the rain and the hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And notice the sin here is that he hardened his heart. Oh, Finally, we got some respite from this wacky, terrible hail. No way I'm letting those Israelites go. So he just feigned repentance. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and this is the last time Pharaoh gets to do it. God's going to go full Burger King on him from this point on. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people go. Just as the Lord had spoken through Moses, that's exactly what he said would happen. Chapter 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I might show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. In other words, I want you to catechize all of your children in this story. I want all of your kids to know I harshly treated he who continued to harden his heart against me, and then I hardened his heart. Law and gospel both come from God. And you sit there and go, dang, this is harsh. Yes, it's supposed to. It's supposed to be harsh because sin is not something God winks at. Instead, sin is ultimately dealt with by God himself becoming a man, taking all of our sins upon himself on the cross and bleeding and dying in our place, the punishment that we all deserved. God never winks at sin. Its ultimate consequences are seen in the agony of Christ on the cross and his suffering and bleeding and death for you and for me. But we have to preach law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. To withhold this information is actually to go against what God commanded. We must teach it to our children, to ourselves, to our neighbors. Notice how seriously God takes rebellion against him. God says, I want you to teach this to your children. But it's not politically correct. So, since when did political correctness have a say in what we teach? God said he wants this taught to our kids. 
So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they said to him, Well, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? That's a good opening comment. Yeah, I was thinking back when uh, about the stuff for the house and stuff. Only there was so much to strengthen the roof of the house, but God had promised that to go to your house. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's true. Promise of God than the pitch of crowd. Yeah. Yeah. And God is capable of making a hailstorm storm in one spot and not another. Clearly we see that in Goshen. He promised those who took his word seriously and took shelter that they wouldn't suffer loss, and they didn't. So how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Remember what Pharaoh is. Pharaoh is a false god king. He is a living deity on earth. And so this is a fight between a false god and the real god. And the real god says to the false god, repent, humble yourself before me. And Pharaoh says, not on your life. Not even a fair fight. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. They shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came on earth to this day. And then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. I'm pretty convinced that the only person in all of Scripture who would look at a plague of locusts as dinner time is John the Baptist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's a plague for you Egyptians? Well, that's just harvest day for John the Baptist. Okay, so Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, go, serve Yahweh your God. But which ones are you to go? Moses said, well, we'll go with our young, our old. We'll go with our sons and daughters, with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to Yahweh. But he said to them, Yahweh be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord. That is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Yeah, exactly. And that's not how this is not going to work. Who's in the driver's seat here, Pharaoh or Yahweh? All right. So the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land and all the hail, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all of the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land, all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned against Yahweh your God. 
and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Please only this once and plead with Yahweh, your God, only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. Repentance is no longer possible for Pharaoh. No longer possible. So then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Three days. Hmm. Got to pay attention to that three days stuff in Scripture. When Jesus was dying on the cross, there was darkness over the whole earth for three hours. Got to pay attention to this stuff, right? So they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Notice, light, darkness. That's good interplay here. Good, evil, light, darkness. You get the idea. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go! Serve Yahweh, your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. This is not a good negotiation. God is actually calling for unconditional surrender. No, 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 this is not how this is going to go down. You're going to repent, humble yourself, and acknowledge me before men as God of the earth. Yes? Uh huh. So like, oh, crossing the Red Sea. Well, during certain times, parts of it was dry. So that's really what happened. You know, whatever. Did they have an explanation for this? No. Or did they just say that this didn't happen? They always try to come up with naturalistic explanations. Uh, the best one I've seen. The best one I've seen. So here's the. So the question is, they always try to come up with explanations. So the people who don't believe in miracles. Well, the reason Jesus was able to walk on water is because he knew where all those shallow stones were, and he was just you know, kind of hopping along. Or maybe he was wearing cork sandals. Who knows, right? Um, the best example I've seen regarding these plagues is that they tied it to the eruption of, um, oh, was it Mount... Uh, what? Pompeii. Pom- uh, not Pompeii. Um, it's, it's, it, it's, it, there's a volcano that erupted in the year 1500 B.C. in uh, north of Greece. Is it Vesuvius? I'd have to look it up. Yeah, they blame it on a, 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 a basically a caldera volcano eruption in uh, in uh, in the where Greece is in the ocean there, and that that's what caused this darkness. Well, well, I mean, it just so happened that the winds were blowing just right, so it was only dark right along the border. Yeah, it's it's the series of naturalistic, well, coinkydinkies, you know, kind of thing. Listen, God can do what God can do because God is God, and all right. And the person who sits there and says that, listen, a miracle is a breaking of the laws of nature. Therefore, miracles can't happen. Listen, a breaking of a law of nature is not like breaking the law that says thou shalt not kill. 
A breaking of the law of nature is just a meddling with how things are organized here in the earth. And God, who created everything, could do whatever he wants. It's not like that there's some police officer going to pull Jesus over and go, Whoa, I'm sorry there, buddy. You just broke one of the laws of nature. It's time for you to come on in and have a talk with the judge. It just doesn't work this way. God is God. God can do what God wants to do. Yeah. Think of what mentally they must have been going Look at the preaching. Look at the preaching in the time of the Depression and the Dust Bowl and stuff like that. They were constantly likening it to these plagues. Yeah. They were. They would have had to have. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, no, it was in the 30s. It was in the 30s. Yeah. Yeah. They saw it as God's judgments. Yeah. 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 That's right. They didn't have all the antibiotics that we have now and all the medical technology. Yep. So we continue. So Pharaoh has said they got to leave their herds. Moses said, all right, you must let us sacrifice, have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve Yahweh our God, and we do not know with what we must serve Yahweh until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Roughly translated, get out of my face. Take care, you never see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you will die. Moses said, have it your way. As you say, I will not see your face again. Let's check the scorecard real quick. See how the gods of Egypt are doing. We last left out, Yotchit took, took a dive. Now we've got with the disease on the cattle, Ptah, Nevis, Hathor, and Ammon. They're all down. And then with the boils, Sekhmet, Serapis, Amenhotep, he's gone. Nut, I love that. God named Nut. Sometimes you feel like a nut. Anyway. Uh, Isis and Seth are gone. Shu, gone. The locust Serapia, the Egyptian deity protector from locusts, didn't do his job. And then you got Ray, Amun Ray, Aten, Atum, Horus, and Thoth, the Egyptian moon god. That's pretty much all of the Egyptian gods just sitting as wrecks. Where's Ra? Ra, Ra, Siskumba? I think Ra was taken care of. Yeah, yeah. Ray, Ray. Yeah. Oh, Ra, not yeah. So you see what's going on here. This is a judgment against all of those false deities. They're totally powerless. And this is a call for the false god king, Pharaoh, to humble himself, and he doesn't. Opportunity after opportunity, and he resists, hardens his heart. God says that's it. The next plague, the death of the firstborn. Again, the connections here between Christ the Passover and all this, that takes a whole class. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My mail address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, lecture number two, 
on the uh, types and shadows uh, that are prevalent in uh, the Passover. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build a God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm. I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today.
Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could really make you dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never spends time working through teaching God's Word in depth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. We have four ranks in our crew. They are as follows. Uh, lowest rank, Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at twenty four ninety five a month. From there, Master Gunner at forty nine ninety five a month, and then after that, Quartermaster at ninety nine ninety five a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to make a one time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box one three three four four, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code five eight two zero eight. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is uh, lecture number two. Uh, this is talking about the types and shadows found in the, in, the, uh, in the Passover itself from the book of Exodus. Here we go. All right, while we're waiting for that to restart, let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the gift of salvation and redemption. And we pray, Lord, as we open up the book of Exodus and begin to study the last plague, we pray that you would open our eyes to see how it connects to you and your sacrifice for our sins, as well as even the Lord's Supper. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, while we're waiting for that to get started, today we're going to be looking at the final plague. The tenth and final plague is, let's just say, packed rich with biblical typology that points us directly to Jesus. And let's see here. There we go. Positive things are happening over on the technology front. Let's see if we can do this. 
If I, if I use my, the laser beams from my eyeballs, I'm trying to think that that'll fix the problem. My wife uses those all the time. So, but. All right, so our last plague is the, the death of the firstborn. This is a plague that is a, a clear demonstration of both God's wrath and His mercy. And this is one of those things that demonstrates to us the seriousness of our sin. The fact that God is both loving and just plays into this. And so we're going to see God's judgment against those who persist in sin and unbelief and refuse to believe the word of the Lord. They're going to be playing the part of the Egyptians. And the Israelites, they are going to be saved. But this is an important thing to keep in mind as we look at this text. And that is, is that although the Lord is going to specifically make a distinction between Israel and Egypt, that distinction is made not by virtue of who they are, but by virtue of who has a substitute. The best way to put it, in this plague, there's going to be death everywhere. There's death in in Goshen, there's death in Egypt. But the nature of the death is going to determine whether you are judged or saved. And so God is providing a substitute death for the Israelites. It's important for us to keep that in mind because all of this points to Jesus. We'll look at the clear biblical passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that lays this out for us. It's actually in the context, believe it or not, of sexual immorality, which I think is fascinating. And we will look then at the implications regarding the Passover lamb as it relates to the Lord's Supper. And yes, there are implications. And there's even a baptismal typology in there as well. It takes a little bit of study to dig it out, and we'll see if we can pull it out today. Here's what it says, Exodus 11.1. 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. After he will, afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. And Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of his people. A little bit of an aside here. Within charismatic circles, there is a doctrine that floats around and makes the rounds periodically. And the doctrine goes something like this. I have heard a word from the Lord that the great transfer of wealth from the pagans to the believers is just about to take place. And they will invoke this passage. The great transfer of wealth. Apparently, they think that this has some future fulfillment where pagans apparently are going to come knock on our doors and give us their bank accounts, which is nonsense. Yeah, I know. Wow! I want to go to that church. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I hear about how the pagans are going to give me another 401k. Yeah, no, that's not what this is about. And I, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because we must continue to make a distinction between what are descriptive texts as opposed to prescriptive text. A descriptive text is like this, a historical narrative. It tells us what happened. A prescriptive text tells us what we're to believe or what we're to do. And there is no prescription here that says, for you Christians in the 21st century, expect the pagans to show up and give you all their gold. But it says right here, your neighbor's well. Well, if you were there, how old are you? (laughs) 
I didn't know you were that old. See, if you were there at the time and you were an Israelite living in Goshen, well, yeah, this, this happened in your history. But this is not some promise that pagans are going to show up at your door giving you things. So if you ever hear a radio or television preacher talk about the great transfer of wealth from the wicked to the righteous, you know that you're listening to somebody who's teaching a false doctrine. They're twisting God's word. We continue with verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says Yahweh, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man nor or beast, that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all those, all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12. Let me get there real quick. Exodus 12. There. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses and Aaron, In the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all of the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb." So now you see that God is basically setting up a substitute. There's going to be a lamb. The lamb is going to die rather than the firstborn, and the lamb's blood is going to be used. And you're going to notice that the lamb is is going to be, well, sufficient for an entire household. This would include infants. This would include the aged, the infirmed, those who suffer you know, you can say uh, a, a disability of the mind or, the, or even of the physical ailment. Was this the 10th of January? No, actually, Abib is going to be in the spring. So this is, this is actually coming up to Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is crucified on the Passover. The Hebrew calendar is different than the Julian calendar that we follow. So the Hebrews, they follow a lunar calendar. And so this says that their first, the first year, the first month of their year begins with this month. And in that beginning of the year, then the feast of the Passover is to be recognized. And so this is going to fall in the spring. It moves around though, because the Hebrew calendar is, is based on a lunar cycle. The days move. You know, they're not fixed like the Julian calendar. Yes? Passover is supposed to be unleavened bread. What's the significance of Now see, you're asking the right question. What's the significance of unleavened bread? We're going to get to that in a minute. So hold the thought, 
And I'm going to show you from 1 Corinthians 5 how we're to understand the unleavened bread. It's all typologically pointing to something. So the note here is, is that this lamb is sufficient as a sacrifice to save an entire household. Nobody is singled out and said, nope, this doesn't apply to you. We need to keep that in mind. So, And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old. A year old lamb is large. <laughs> Almost adolescent is the right way to put it. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep of the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. A little bit of a note here. Jesus dies at twilight on the Passover. What's happening while Jesus is dying, literally dying, with the people of Israel? What are they doing? Killing their sheep. Fascinating. I think that's an accident. It's on purpose. Now, let me do a little cross-reference work here so we can kind of see how the typology works. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5. And we're going to note that this is spoken in the context of the Apostle Paul correcting the Corinthian church for not disciplining sexual immorality in their midst. Here's what it says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So, yeah, you think that your church might have problems, right? You know, I, <laughs> we haven't had this one here yet, at least that I know of. So, he then goes on. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, in the power of the Lord, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, this tells you what excommunication is really for. If there's somebody who remains impenitent within the congregation, and rather than repent and be forgiven and bear fruit in keeping with repentance, they persist in sin when confronted, they, they risk being put out of the congregation. And the purpose of that is so that their soul may be saved. Basically hand them over to the devil in order to teach them to not do these things. The ultimate goal of church discipline is the, is the sinner's restoration and salvation not that they just, okay, well, we can wash our hands of that person. They're gone. That's not what that's about. And so this passage makes that clear. Now, this is our context then as we continue in verse 6. Paul says, your boasting is not good. They were actually boasting about the fact that this fellow was um, had his father's wife. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so now we see leaven coming into play, and Paul is going to make this clear that this has everything to do with the Passover. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
So let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So now you start to see what's going on here. So with the Passover, this is the feast of unleavened bread. Get rid of all of the yeast. Yeast then is in typology, symbolically pointing to sin. Unleavened bread is sinless bread. Hmm, I wonder who that would be. Notice I said who, not what. Sinless bread. Hmm. I am, Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven. He's unleavened bread. You see how this is starting to work out here? Okay, so you get rid of the sin. You get rid of the leaven. That's what that is pointing to. And then the explicit statement, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Passover lamb in the Passover points directly to Jesus. It's a one-to-one typology, and it fits perfectly. Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the male sacrifice without blemish. You see how this all works? So this helps us understand the typology going on then in the Passover. So if a household's too small for a lamb, you share, get rid of the... um, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, year old, 14th day of the month, congregation shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood of the lamb, put it on the two doorposts in the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Let me show you what this looks like. So this is our Egyptian doorway here. And the two doorposts are on the side, the lintel's on the top. So the blood goes on the two sides. Here's our blood and some on the top of the lintel. Whoops. It's starting to look a lot like a cross. And if you think about it, I mean, the blood that's on the top, blood has a tendency to let gravity do what it does, starts to run down. If it's running down, then visually you're already beginning to see a blood cross. That is not an accident. That is exactly by design. So even where the blood goes, hints at, connect the dots, this is pointing to Christ's cross. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. So put it on the two doorposts, the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. They shall eat of it. A little bit of a note here. What are you supposed to do with your Passover lamb? Eat it. Eat it. This has implications then regarding the Lord's Supper. Take, eat. This is my body. Take, drink. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. So we too also consume our Passover lamb in the Lord's Supper. All of these things mesh together and gives us a fuller picture of what's going on in the Lord's Supper and what Christ has done for us. And in a very real way, you can now start to see how this all works. Israel is in slavery in Egypt under a false god king and false deities. And that false god will not let them go. They cannot free themselves. So God steps in and through mighty acts of judgment, culminating in the death of the Passover lamb, 
they are set free from the dominion of darkness. And right after that, they're marched out to the Red Sea and baptized. Does this sound familiar? You see, this is our story because we have been grafted into Israel. What was type and shadow in the Old Testament is fulfilled and the reality is in Christ. And when you take the, the Old Testament and the New Testament and read them together, you can see how they work together. A lot of Christians don't pay attention to the front end of the book. They don't know what to do with it because they keep reading themselves into it. This isn't about you. It's about what Christ is doing for you. And when you can see how this relates to Him, now you can see how the whole thing works together from cover to cover. So don't eat any of your Passover lamb raw. You're not allowed to have lamb sushi. Don't boil it in water, but it needs to be roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. And we've noted as we worked through the list of the nine plagues previous, all of the gods of Egypt who were tasked with the job of protecting the Egyptians, they all failed miserably to protect the Egyptians against the one true God, Yahweh. And so we can see here from this passage that all along God really has been executing judgment against the false gods, the idols of Egypt. He says, I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, it behooves us to remember here what is taught in Scripture regarding the Lord's Supper specifically, but then how this relates to how covenants work. And you're going to notice here that the blood is a sign. It's a sign, and when God sees it, He's going to pass over and not destroy them. Now, let's going to require us to do a little bit of work in Genesis. If you flip back with me to Genesis chapter 9 real quick, verse 8. For our context, the flood has already finished. Noah and his family are out of the ark. God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth, that is with you as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. This is a cutting of a covenant. Covenant is like a contract. And God is the one making the promises. He's making the promises to all of mankind and to all of the animals. And in these days, a covenant has promises. It has a sign. And the sign of the covenant causes one to remember the promises. So, here's he says, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy all the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, 
I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So you'll notice the way the covenant works. Promises, sign. The sign recalls the promises. When the sign is seen, who's doing the remembering? God is. That's the important part. The rainbow? What? No, it's not a sign of pride. Yeah, well, you're, you need to knock that off. <laughs> they, clearly, they've hijacked it. So coming back, so coming back to Exodus 12, these, the, we were finishing with the words regarding the fact that they were going to see the blood. And let me get there. The blood shall be a sign for you, God says in verse 13, on the houses where you are, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You notice, there's a promise, there's a sign, and God is remembering something. This is covenantal talk. So God is coming through Egypt. He's going to visit every block. Every neighborhood gets a visit from God. And as God is passing through, He looks at the door, and if there's blood on the door, He moves on. He passes over that house. Goes to the next house, looks at the door. If there's no blood, He says, Calls to the destroyer. I wish I could do that whistle thing. You know, I can't do that. Anyway, whistles for the destroyer, sends the destroyer in. Firstborns in the house die. You see it? So he sees the blood and he says, the, sign, the blood is a sign for you. And when I see it, I'm going to do these things. Similar thing then comes into play in the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11. Starting at verse 17. Boy, these poor Corinthians... Man, they had some serious challenges in their church. Let me tell you about their communion service. <sighs> their communion service was a little bit screwed up. Not sure how they ha- what liturgy they were following, but the poor, those who were not, did not have good financial means in the Corinthian congregation, were actually being barred from having the Lord's Supper. And the, those people who were having it, to help ensure that the poor wouldn't get any, would eat what was left of the bread and have enough wine for themselves that there were people actually getting drunk on the communion wine. Okay, now that sounds like a really screwed up communion service to me. But let's take a look at what Paul says of this. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. From the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear... There are divisions among you. I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Just a little bit of a side note. It's a little tough to get drunk on grape juice. Just saying. So here we've got a problem. They're abusing the Lord's Supper. 
They're abusing other people in the process of the Lord's Supper, and Paul is having none of it. And so Paul is going to correct them. We're going to fix this little problem. And so Paul goes back to kind of the Vince Lombardi approach. The Vince Lombardi approach is, well, Vince Lombardi, what did he do? He held up a football and said, gentlemen, this is a football. We're going to go back to basics. So he whips out his catechism, if you would, and goes back to the basics regarding the Lord's Supper. Here's what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered from you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Some texts actually say broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance. What does that mean? Yeah, this is covenantal talk. And the next part will point that out. This is covenantal talk. In remembrance is covenantal talks. It's not us going and thinking really hard, oh, Jesus, that had to hurt. That's not really the point. We're remembering the promises of the covenant, but more importantly, God is. So this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here we've got a covenant again. This is new covenant established on the night that Jesus is betrayed on the eve of the Passover. Jesus is celebrating the Passover that night, but it's still the eve of the Passover. On the eve of the Passover, Christ fulfills all the promises. The type and shadow gives way to the reality. He establishes the new covenant and he holds up a wine glass filled with wine and says, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Who's doing the remembering? God is. And what's in the cup? The blood of Christ. So the blood is a sign to you. And when God sees the blood, what does he do? He he passes over. So think of it this way. Your mouth is the doorway to your body. And so every single time we have the Lord's Supper, the blood of Christ is on our lips and on our tongue. And God remembers His promises and He sees the blood of His Son and He passes over and He forgives and He saves you. The Lord's Supper is an amazingly beautiful, comforting, gospel thing. Can't get enough of it. Give me that blood to put on the door of my body so that Christ will pass over and forgive and save me. And this is why you hear, broken, shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. This is covenantal stuff here. These are the signs of the covenant for us to see and for God to see and to remember that you are in Him. You are forgiven. You are bled for. You are died for. Christ, your Passover lamb, has been slain. Let's come back to our text in Exodus then. Verse 13, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
And to all of this we say, Amen. And now we see how this kind of rolls into the new covenant and how this is all working together. This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh throughout all of your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Mark, you have. I think we got the answer to your question on that. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. Let's get rid of all of your sin. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat. And alone that, that alone may be prepared for you. It's basically saying on Christmas Day, don't go to work, just make the turkey. That's what it's saying here. It's kind of a rough cultural context translation, right? And so, you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all of your dwelling places, so that you shall, and places you shall eat unleavened bread. And so you'll notice here that the unleavened bread typologically points to Sinless bread, you know, it's, the, it's getting rid of sin. In a similar way, when we get into the part of the Mosaic Covenant where there's the distinction made between clean and unclean foods, it's kind of a similar theme. And now that Christ has come, we can have bacon. So, amen. Verse 21, Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select your lambs for yourselves according to your clans. Kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. Now, this is where, if you start to do the study in Scripture on hyssop, you can begin to see that in some way this is hinting at baptism. I'll explain it in a minute, but watch what it says. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord, that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. Now, I'm going to make a note here. I want to come back and I want to grab this word, hyssop. Let's see if I can do a quick study on it. It doesn't appear very often. Yep, here's our hyssop text. So we've only got 12 instances where hyssop shows up in Scripture. And you'll notice in this context, the hyssop is dipped into the blood and the hyssop is used to mark the doorposts. In Leviticus 14, there is literally a procedure given for cleansing for the the cleansing of a leper, and there's even a washing that is involved. And hyssop comes into play. I won't read it all out. I've actually recently preached on this in a sermon, but hyssop plays a vital role in the creating of this washing water for those who have been cleansed from leprosy. 
Fascinating how that comes in. And so it's mentioned a few times in Leviticus 14 in relation to that. It's again mentioned in Numbers 19, but I'm going to pay attention to the last few instances. It makes its last appearance in, uh, in, in the Old Testament in Psalm 51, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Yeah, it sounds like baptism. And not only that, not only does it sound like baptism, but because the hyssop is the thing being used, and its real first referent is in relation to the blood of the Lamb of the Passover, there seems to be a connection when you typologically point the dots together. Does that make... Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Hmm, what's, what's on that hyssop that's going to clean me? Blood, right. Okay, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And when Jesus is being crucified in the Gospel of John, John records for us a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. <laughs> you're sitting there going, wait a you, you, you see it? It's kind of like all works together. And then the last part, let me give a little bit more fuller context, is in Hebrews chapter 9, where it says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So the idea here is is that sometimes you kind of have to pay attention to little elements within the typology and then see how they come into play. So the hyssop is used, put it in the blood, sprinkle the doors with it. The hyssop shows up again in Psalm 51. Wash me with hyssop and I will be whiter than snow. And then we see in Hebrews the recollection that hyssop is used with the sprinkling and the cleansing of people with the sacrifice And even Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, has sour wine held up to him, specifically using hyssop. And you sit there and go, these little details can't possibly be a coincidence. Because they're not. Huh? A God incidence. Right on. Godcidence? It's it's not a coincidence, it's a Godcidence. That one would be. Who is this destroyer? Okay. Um, so the idea here is, is that put, probably the destroyer is going to be an angel who is, the, who is the one who's tasked to be the one to actually do the executing. So we're most likely the destroyer is, is a particular angel that Christ has chosen for this task. So God doesn't kill them. No, it's not an evil thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Here's the fun part: is that we are not angels. That is a a species um, problem. 
And when we die, we do not become angels. And the clearest text you can point people to would be like something like 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the, the resurrection where it explains how when Christ returns, we're all going to be raised from the grave. And we're going to be like Christ and his, and his body. So in the intermediate state, we are like the angels in this sense. We don't have bodies. Okay, so we'll be up in heaven singing, I ain't got no body. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, so, but that's an intermediate state for us. At the resurrection, we are at resurrected and we have bodies that are just like Christ. And so Christ is the God-man forever and he sits on the throne of David forever. New heavens, new earth. Angels are spirits. And so we don't know the, how that exactly works, and we know very little about it. But there is no text that says we turn into spirits or we turn into angels, nothing like that. So when you see that, um, uh, what is that, that black and white Christmas uh, program that everyone watches every year on television? It's a wonderful life. When you hear a bell ring, an angel gets its wings. You know, and you know, it's like, yeah, that's just really bad theology. <laughs> yeah. It's a show. It's a show. It's a show. Just, just don't go with the theology in it, you know. So, yeah. So the idea here is, is that no, we do not become angels. Okay. Angel itself, the word angelos, means a messenger. And sometimes it's actually referring to a pastor. So like when, when Jesus appears to John in the book of Revelation, says to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write. That would be the pastor. When it's talking about a, a being that is an angelic being, which also appears in the book of Revelation, then the, those are those, the, the spirits, the, the, the seraphim and, you know, and things like that. And so that, that's a completely different group altogether. And the devil himself was part of that group. And so we are not transformed into a different, into a different species. And we are made a little lower than the angels in this lifetime. And eventually, at the resurrection, we're going to be on the same footing as them, equal before God you know, in our, in our creation as the angels. We'll never be above them, and they'll no longer be above us. So, but that's in, that's in glory. You have asked the $24 million question. Okay, um... This, oh man, a lot of ink has been spilled on this one. Nobody knows exactly how this works. I don't know. <laughs> okay, okay, so here's, here's how you have to start to think of it in these terms. The universe has a beginning. Even the Big Bang Theory proves this. It has a beginning, which means it ultimately has to have an end. So when you think about the time-space continuum where one thing happens after another happens after another happens after another. That's how things work in time and space. This has a beginning. Eternity itself is not inside of time and space. It's outside of it, which means eternity itself doesn't experience time like we do. Okay? And if you're sitting there going, my head is blowing up. Mine too. I don't understand how it works. So the angels are heavenly beings. They're not part of time and space by their nature. They're created in eternity. When? Well, when is a function of time and space. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> so 
I don't know, you know, because you, now you're starting to mix metaphors. Yeah. I'm sure that that's like on the top five questions when people get to heaven. You know, it's like, hey, when were the... Yeah, okay. So, so the, best I, the best I can do is that when they were created is a question that assumes they're made in time and space, but they're eternal beings. So that doesn't work. That's, you know, that's like saying, when was God created? He wasn't. Okay, I'm not saying that they're eternal, but they were created in eternity, which I don't even know how it works. Haven't experienced it, have no way of comprehending it. I'm a man of the earth. Okay, I am looking forward to living in a new earth world without end. Good wine, good food, seeing the face of God. It's going to be fantastic. Eternity is not our home. So, yeah. So, when did, were they created? We will say this, that the fall of Satan has to be sometime before the Garden of Eden incident. You know, that's the best we can put it. But it doesn't say. We, we, can't, we can't even put our finger on it. Okay. Okay, now, now you, we're, we're going to note something here. As Lutherans, we are people of the book. I'm going to answer your, your, begin to answer your question with a very important phrase that Lutheran theologians are supposed to follow. Not everyone has, and this is where you get in trouble. The phrase is this, quad non est biblicum, non est theologicum. That which is not in the Bible is not theology. So here's the idea. If I don't have a clear passage that says why God created them, I have no idea. And speculating isn't going to help. It just is. Okay, so here's the idea. My wife, from time to time, expects me to read her mind. I am terrible at this. But I've learned that I've, to pick up on verbal cues. There's certain words that mean I'm in trouble. One of them is the word fine. Okay, but here's the thing. I can't read her mind. I am certainly not going to be able to read the mind of God. And so God has to reveal these things to me. And what he reveals, I say, okay, I'm, that's what he said. What he doesn't reveal, that stays within his own mind and his own counsel. And it's not given for me to know. So as a pastor and a theologian, I am, my, my limits are as far as what Scripture says. And I'm not aware of a biblical text that says why God created the angels. I do know this, that currently the angels are ministering spirits and they attend to our needs and they protect us. Scripture is very clear about this. And so God has chosen the agency, one of the agencies by which he meets our needs, is through these eternal spirits. Now, I don't know if that's if I don't know if that's what they were made for. No, 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 no. You're you're confusing yourself with God. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things we will get to understand once the veil is lifted and we can see God face to face and converse with Him face to face. 
which we don't do right now. And I will say this, it's also clear that when we die, you can think of, I think a good way to think of the angels, kind of a metaphor would be they're kind of like God's Navy, Navy seals. And so as you're getting ready to die and a regiment of God's Navy seals, no joke, this is how scripture describes it. They will be there at your death and accompany you to Christ's presence. Just give it time. We're all going to figure out what they look like. Yeah. Right. I have a general rule of thumb, and that is is that anybody who says that I have a revelation from God, my first intuition is to say, this person's got a problem. Anybody claiming direct revelation from God, most likely, and I mean 99.9999, stretch that thing out, percent of the time once people are claiming to be hearing from God, they're not. They're either hearing from their stomach um, they're hearing, I, I say that just because, you know, their appetites seem to be involved. Um, they're hearing from their stomach. They're either delusional or they're hearing from the demonic. And here's the thing is scripture makes it clear that if somebody is claiming to have revelation from God, if these are really God's, if it's a revelation from God, we are duty bound to believe and obey God. Okay. That person has risen to the, to the level of prophet. And notice the, the word that I use today where Christ, I pointed out that all of the law and the prophets prophesied until John the Baptist. This is done. Um, so the, the end times are filled with, according to Jesus, false Christs, false prophets. So if a prophet comes to us, you know, if I were to stand up on a Sunday morning and say, you know what, I, I had this dream last night from God, and God told me these things. You need to quarantine me, and we're going to have to do some pretty like IRS-level audits of my life and theology and stuff like that before we're going to uh, say that's from God. And all all too often, Christians very foolishly, if somebody says, God told me, they say, wow, that's great. What did, like, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. But it is. That's it. It is. How do you make the distinction between revelation Ah, well, here's the thing. A leading of the Spirit oftentimes, and this, and here's what I'll point this out. A leading of the Spirit is oftentimes the Holy Spirit inside of you kicking you and saying, are you going to obey my written word or not? Let me, let me explain. So there you are, you're in a situation, and you see a person over there, and you hear through their conversation that they are in dire financial need. And you're sitting there going, I wonder if I should help that person. Well, what does the Word of God say? So now you have the Holy Spirit inside of you going, Hey, dummy! Are you going to pay attention or not? If if, if we've got to get to the prompting level, notice what He's prompting you on is what He's already revealed in His Word. Now, we we say this. We also, I'll give you another example, and we'll end with this kind of concept for today. In the Lutheran Church, we understand that it is God, the Holy Spirit, who calls men into the pastoral office. Acts chapter 20 explicitly says this. And so here's how we kind of work this out. There are a lot of guys who say, I think I might be being called to being a pastor. And some of them are, and some of them are not. Now, when I first began to think, maybe I'm, good, I'm supposed to be a pastor, 
I went to my pastor, it was Pastor Bill Swirla, and I told him, and he said, just knock that off. Stop thinking about it. It'll go away. <laughs> okay. So I knocked it off, but it didn't go away. And I, so I waited a few years and came back to him and says, no, I, I really think I'm... A... No, it's probably not the Holy Spirit. I mean, he's really did everything he could to like dissuade me from doing this. Yeah, right, exactly. And so he was, and he, then he explained to me like all of the gory details of what it's really like to be a pastor, you know, thinking that'll that'll cure it, right? <laughs> Listen, if you haven't been in the office, there's no way to quite get it. Okay, I remember talking to him a few months ago, going, "Man, I remember what you told me. I wish I'd listened a little bit more." <laughs> it's a tough job, but it, anyway. So the idea is, I I couldn't shake it. Okay, and it's like, and not only that, it's like things were going wrong in my life where it's like the only option is to go in this direction. It's like, no, 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 no. Okay, so finally I kind of gave up. It's like, all right, maybe I am. And, um, and so here's the idea that we call that the immediate call. Somebody says, okay, I think the Holy Spirit's pushing me in this direction. All of this is scriptural because God, the Holy Spirit, calls men to the office, and the office has to be filled. There's a, there's a need. And God is the one, the Holy Spirit, who gives teaching gifts and things like that. So you get a group of guys who then go through the process of what scripture says to be qualified to receive a call. In order to receive a call, you have to study, show yourself approved, a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who can rightly handle the word of truth. This is going to require study and presenting yourself for theological examination. And so they go through the process. They either go to seminary or they study. They do some kind of a program, which then prepares them for the rigors of the office itself. And it's far, it's the, the easiest part of the job is the sermon. It's the other stuff that's really hard, okay? So you have to be prepared for the whole gambit. Then the idea then is, is that once a person has done this, he has to present himself and be examined. Do you really know your stuff? And in the AALC, we have a clergy commission. And it's, it's like basically they give you a cigarette and a blindfold, and then they fire shots at you. Some pretty tough questions, and the process is extremely intense to see if this person truly is qualified. You're going to get theological questions. You're going to get hypothetical questions. You're going to get all kinds of questions like this. And if you can survive that, and the clergy commission says, yes, this man has studied, showed himself approved, and he is qualified to receive a call, then at that point, we wait. Because the Holy Spirit then works in a congregation. The congregation that has an opening they get together and they sit there and say, okay, well, here's our candidate. We've interviewed these guys or this whatever, and we think we want to extend a call to this person, and so we vote. And if the vote comes back, we're going to call that man, then we call that the immediate call. The immediate call confirms that the man who believed he was being called into the office truly was. So the two then meet, and we have something objective to work from. Does that make sense? And see, all of this we understand. Scripture says the men are called into the office by the Holy Spirit. Straight up says that. Okay, and the means that we've set up is like just because somebody feels something doesn't mean that they're true. And there are a lot of men who wash out in seminary and and other places thinking that they were being called into the office when in fact they weren't. Instead, the, the Holy Spirit worked through the process which takes a long time, and I think it's good that it takes a long time, work through the process to wash those out who were truly not being called. Is it perfect? 
No. But worked for several thousand years. Something very similar to this. Yeah. Now, okay, so here's the thing. It's clear in Scripture in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness so that the man, and you can say woman of God, is equipped for every good work. The things that God is going to call you to do are true good works, and you should be able to find them in Scripture. God is not going to call you to sell all of your possessions and, um, and become a homeless person in order to minister to the homeless. He's not going to have you do something absurd you know, like that. Oftentimes when people think that you know, the Holy Spirit is calling me to do something, they'll say, I know it has to be God because it's crazy. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to join a convent. No, that's probably not the Holy Spirit. The, our good works are done in our vocation as husband, wife, father, mother, son, daughter, employer, employee. And so oftentimes people have these strange ideas and they pin it on the Holy Spirit and, and they won't be dissuaded at all that this is not true. Let me give you an example. Um, are you familiar with that television show, The Doctors? Have any of you seen this? Recently had a girl on there, 15 years old. This girl believes that she had a revelation from God that she's going to give birth to Jesus and she's a virgin. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Okay, so she claims she's hearing from God. So she tells this to her mother. Her mother thinks she's nuts and makes her take a pregnancy test. And of course, she's not pregnant. The girl won't believe the pregnancy test, so she makes her take multiple pregnancy tests. She continues to not be pregnant. Shock. And so her mother, like at the end of a rope, literally contacts the television show, the doctors, and says, listen, my, my daughter thinks that she's going to give birth to Jesus and she's a virgin and that she's pregnant right now. Can you help? And they said, yeah, well, let's bring her on the show. We'll give her an ultrasound and show her the results. So they brought her in, gave her an ultrasound, and sure enough, there was no baby in her womb. And the girl still won't believe that she's not pregnant with Jesus because she claims she heard from God. What do you do in a situation like that? She needs to go to the other program called the psychiatrists. Okay? So the mother's first thought was to go on TV. I don't think that was her first thought. Her first thought was, was to use this pregnancy test. But I mean, just, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I don't know. That was a little off topic, but you kind of get the idea. Yeah. So, all right, we'll pick this up. Um, I don't think we we don't have next week's the the Christmas program, right? So we don't have Sunday school next week. We don't have Sunday school on Christmas or first of January. We'll see you guys in a few weeks. All right, we'll see you for church though. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard. On this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>